Welcome to Black Bottom Saints with Alice Randall. I'm your host, Alice Randall. Each episode of this podcast will explore the life of a particular saint in the novel Black Bottom Saints, the rich history of Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood, what the Detroit past has to tell us about the global future, and end with a cocktail recipe. This podcast is for people who have and have not read Black Bottom Saints. Each episode will be talking about the play between history and fiction and how one informs the other. I hope a stop here is a little like meeting up with a talkative stranger in the lobby of Detroit's fabled Gotham Hotel. This week, I want to introduce you to attorney Lawrence Massey, and I can think of no better way than to introduce (laughs) you to attorney Lawrence Massey by introducing you to attorney Richard Manson, my longtime friend who has has a revered connection to the only living Black Bottom St. Artist Lane, and multiple profound connections to Detroit, to Black Bottom, and to Massey. I have long thought of Manson as Nashville's Massey. Richard, so pleased to have you here on the Black Bottom Saints podcast. Thank you so much, Alice. I am excited about being a participant in what I think is just a absolutely phenomenal book that you've written. I am just like blown away from the things that uh, that you covered and the lives that uh, have been touched or have touched all of us in some form or fashion. Um, you were speaking to us from your corporate office today or from your legal office today? No, I'm from the I'm speaking to you from the corporate office today. Uh, and so, um, you know, it, I'm, I, I, you can find me between either one of those places. But, um, yeah, I'm doing the corporate thing today. Before we start talking about my favorite Richard Manson connection to the Black Bottom Saints, I would like to give listeners a bit of background on you. You attended and graduated from Fisk University, where Black Bottom Saint Robert Hayden was a professor for 20 years. Like our globe-trotting saints, including Tim Moore, Lucille Ellis, and Papa Mills of the Mills Brothers, you set out overseas in your early days, in your case, after winning a hyper-prestigious Watson Fellowship. You earned a law degree from Vanderbilt, and though you don't look old enough for this to be so, you are still brilliant, tall, dark, and handsome. You have practiced law for over 50 years and are a founding and named partner in a prominent Nashville law firm, though you now also guide a major corporation. Over the years, you've made a name for yourself in business law, with one of your focuses being, like Massey, entertainment industry, and another being small businesses, and yet another being multi-business collaborations that sometimes include very large corporations. On the personal front, our daughters, yours now a doctor, mine a poet and professor, attended the same nursery school, same kindergarten, and indeed schools from the time they were three until about 13. I appreciate your appreciation of Black Bottom Saints, and I want to tell you that your Ashley and my Caroline were very much in my mind when I wrote Black Bottom Saints, because I wanted to share Black history that was being lost with the next generation that had to carry us forward. And you in particular were in my mind when I wrote Ziggy's Lawrence Massey chapter, because once upon a time you were my Lawrence Massey. Welcome again, Richard. Thank you so much. Wow, that's quite an introduction. Uh, and, and I do appreciate all the kind things that you've said about me. Uh, it has been a uh, phenomenal career and it does continue. 
and you, uh, our relationship goes back so far at so many different levels and so many touch points that I can't even think of all the ways that you are, you and I have interact, uh, interacted, but also just the, the phenomenal career that you've had uh, and, and how your writing is just like unbelievable. It's so descriptive. It's, so, it's, it's just like I'm there. You know, it was like I was in Detroit during these periods of time, and I'm familiar with Detroit, but your descriptive way and the way that you express it and the way that you described it just simply is, uh, is just truly enjoyable. So let's start into the deep dive, sharing okay. with the audience the revered name, the revered ancestor who is your strong link to Black Bottom, Detroit, and Black Bottom St. Artist Lane and Black Bottom St. Lawrence Massey. Rosa Parks. Yes. Rosa Parks, who famously wouldn't take a seat at the back of the Bucks when she was elderly and living in Detroit, you were her lawyer. And to right. protect her, you blazed into one area of the areas of entertainment of law that Massey practiced, entertainment law. Right. Tell our listeners about you, Rosa Parks, and some of the other folks involved in that story. Well, Rosa Parks, um, I think many people really thought uh, that she had passed away. She's such an iconic person. So there was a incident in Detroit where she had actually gotten beat up by an individual, you know, that she was coming out of her apartment. She was attacked and, and brutalized. And, and I think that brought people's attention back to, you know, Rosa Parks is still living. Yes, she is. So there was a group of us that got together and did a lot of things, moved her to a, a safer place. But that individual that did attack her, he got attacked in that community because she's such, she is so revered that how dare you, you lay a hand on Rosa Parks. So we started working with her. Um, she, she did a couple of books under, you know, under our guidance. Uh, she was touring, already doing some touring you know, throughout the world. Uh, but we started organizing that and getting it structured so that she could be compensated, you know, fairly uh, and that her books and notoriety would be uh, certainly preserved for the next generation. So we worked with her. She wrote a book, uh, a very, very nice book. It's called Quiet Strength. And that really is her. That's a true description of, of her. So not only was uh, she quiet and strength, but she was a very strong person, strong character. I remember going. Uh, I remember going to with her to the Million Man's March, uh, and she was probably the only iconic figure, other than um, uh, the gentleman that uh, Louis Farrakhan who organized it. But she was she was there as part of it and got an opportunity to to speak. And I will never forget uh, that these million black men that were there. When she moved toward the stage, they started saying Rosa, 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 Rosa. And then it just went to a fever pitch. And that was just something that I think to her truly recognized the contribution not only she, that she made uh, by, uh, by not sitting still or, or refusing to move, but that she, she, we were able to embrace the power of the empowerment that she gave to black men and women, you know, around the world. So that was that was something. And so there is a connection between between that. But, you know, I, I, in your book, I read also that um, that 
he worked with Little Richard and others to, you know, make sure make sure they were compensated. And right now, I'm doing the uh, I'm one of the attorneys involved in Little Richard's estate here in Nashville, who died here in Nashville. Oh, I did yeah. not know that. Well, first, yeah. let me say. I took my own daughter and we stood in line four or five oh. hours at one of those Rosa Parks book signings that yeah. you arranged. And mm -hmm. I think that is such a massive move, such a Manson move that you see a problem. You read about a woman being attacked. Mm -hmm. You know yeah. that she's a beloved icon. You don't just solve that immediate problem and move her to a safer apartment. Mm -hmm. You actually start thinking about how does Rosa Parks get to support herself, sustain right. herself as Rosa Parks? And right. you came up to a solution. Mm -hmm. And then I love that taking her and going with her to the Million Man March, which is something yeah. I actually didn't even know right. that that had happened, to mm -hmm. let her be supported by the men. She, the women have oh. carried so much of the movement. Right. So wonderful that she would rise on the movement of the men and be lifted up in that moment. Well, she, you know, Alice, she would say to us, and um, you know, they people were asking, you know, that was pretty. That was a pretty controversial move on her part. Uh, why are you supporting this man? Well, and she was at the, she was at the original uh, march where Martin Luther King spoke. She was mm -hmm. there too. And so her position was, it's why wouldn't I do this? It just makes sense. I mean, he's a black man. He's having something I think is going to be very positive in terms of the approach and the, and the, and the recognition, identification of the roles that black men need to play in the lives of our families, because that's really what it was about. Uh, and so my son went with me and he got a chance to sit with her you know, to autograph, because she was there, she did a, you know, book signing, as she always would, we'd arrange that, and she would sign all of her books, she would never let, you know, some artists and some writers that you use, you know, that electric pen thing, she said that would be dishonest, if you're going to say that I signed this, I autographed this book, then I'm going to autograph it, so she autographed about five books, 500 books that night, and my son got an opportunity to sit with them, because his job was to turn the page, so I love it. it. But, you know, she, it was just that kind of, she was just that kind of person. I don't think people realize, oh, something else out of that she did. If I ever wrote a letter for her, first she'd have to see it. And then she would correct it. She would <laughs> red ink it. And then I could, then I had the permission to, to send it out. And she would always refer to me and all the other, you boys, you guys, you young guys, because we were, you know, to her. And, uh, and I just felt, so honored to be a part of, of who she was and, uh, and, and how we were able to protect her and get her the recognition through Congress and other places, you know, that she was certainly entitled to. And so then of course, now we have artist Lane has done her portrait of Rosa Parks and that is now yes. in Biden's Oval Office. And I think right. that you actually laid a lot of the groundwork, you just mentioned Congress there, of putting Rosa Parks back in the national and Washington eye. Right. One of the things that Colored Girls remembers most clearly about Massey is him telling her, you gotta have a strategy. Mm -hmm. You are known as a man of strategy. Can you talk about the importance of that in both everyday life and in business? Well, I, you know, you, you, you look at uh, nothing happens by accident. Some things happen just because the circumstances dictate it. 
But strategy is a critical part of thinking. So if I'm trying to pursue a contract or I'm trying to pursue uh, you know, something in the entertainment or the business world, then I have to set something in my mind that says, this is the way to do this. And strategy allows us not only to plan it, but you can make allowances for things if it doesn't happen one way, then of course you can come back and make sure it happens in a different way. So strategy is always ongoing. We do, you know, people don't really understand, but they're doing strategic things every day, all day. They just don't see it that way. They just think they're just living it, you know. So strategic thinking, when I said thinking, because it's a mental task, it's a mental uh, function. Strategic thinking, I think, allows you to move issues, projects, and things ahead. Because it's goal-driven the way you present it, that there's a goal and you keep moving towards that. That's correct. I know that you represented me in entertainment space when I was leaving a large publishing company and you represented Ms. Parks in a variety of entertainment spaces, including publishing and in the music world. You just mentioned one, but can you talk about some of your other, name a few of your other entertainment industry clients, because that's something that Lawrence Massey had? Yeah, there's, um, I did some work for BB and CC Winans. Um, they really love them. Family. Uh, yeah, they're, they're great people. Um, I did uh, Bobby Jones Gospel. Great. Which, on, which was on BET. And I was involved in that and had been involved with that, that project for over 35 years, uh, all while he was on BET. In fact, helped to structure that uh, and get that on. Um, and that show was what part of the foundation of yeah. the BET brand. Yeah, it and... was. It, you know, it was the first show that they ever had on uh, that was not like a video show or something. And so was that it, filmed in Nashville from the beginning? It was filmed right at uh, Channel 4. We did So that. Pe- it, people yeah. don't realize, and you were one of those linchpins, mm-hmm. that Nashville, Black Nashville, helped raise and construct the first Black American billionaire. Yes, right. And so, so that, that was really, um, really exciting. You know, you had a network that was just starting up. We structured it. He didn't have a lot of money at that time. So we structured it in a way that we got access to uh, minutes in the show. And so we were able to sell minutes in those shows, which is highly unusual. Uh, in fact, we were doing so well with it that uh, BET decided they need to take that back because we had perfected the idea of selling spots and things in that in that show. And we produced the show right here in Nashville. You know, we edited, filmed it. Uh, we took the same show that we're doing on Channel 4 and we just sort of expanded it. You know, so we started that way. Then we started doing live productions, uh, you know, inviting people in to perform choirs and other individuals. And we started this whole notion of gospel singing truly as an industry and truly as something that needs to be recognized in this country. So the Kirk Franklins, uh, the Donnie McClurkins, all those people really got established through the Bobby Jones Gospel Show. That was the only, that was the only venue that they had other than radio. We know how powerful television can be in terms of introducing someone to the world. I loved it. When I first moved to Nashville in 1983, and that I think is one of the first places I encountered you was my favorite secret Nashville thing to do was to get to go to a Bobby Jones show taping yeah. Yeah. and sit yeah. in the back and hear that music live and meet 
often these powerful women who were performing on the show. It was sustaining. It was an anchor of my national life in the 80s. The Lawrence Massey chapter begins with the words, quote, Lawrence Massey cleaned up other people's honest messes. (laughs) Emphasis on the word honest. You've been practicing law for 50 years. Informed by your five decades of practicing law and advocating for marginalized people. Mm -hmm. What do you think Ziggy meant by that? Cleaning up honest messes. Well, it's, it's something that I've struggled with. I struggled with it for you know, a number of years uh, until I, I kind of grew past it. But in, in a lot of cases, a lot of our artists and others would go to attorneys that really had no interest in them being successful. So they wouldn't necessarily do anything intentionally intentional to hurt that artist. They would just do a halfway job. And then what would happen is they would come to, you know, to him or they would come to me and say, can you help me clean this up? And so you end up cleaning up messes that someone else has created in order to protect your client and to make sure they get fully what they're entitled to. So that's, I think that's what the master, I think that's what they really meant by that because that's mm-hmm. real. It is real. And for a number of years, I wouldn't take a case that had been messed up by somebody else, you know, because I just thought we were being used to clean up, legitimately clean up a mess. You know, it's just like, um, you know, it's just like when when we worked in, um, you know, during uh, during our early days in America, we worked in uh, the master's house and we were always responsible for cleaning up mess. Mm-hmm. And so we, we're not, uh, we're not messy. Mm-hmm. We just end up cleaning up messes that someone else has made, that someone else is, that someone else makes, but that's not who we are. You know, mm-hmm. we're more creative than we are clean uppers, you know, Absolutely. and so to relegate me to a, to a, uh, a role of just fixing something that someone else mets up, messes up, it sort of diminishes who I am, honestly, as a creative being that has a unique skill that needs to be used in a way that it uh, that it highlights and embraces and you know it enhances one's career, not messes up one's career. Absolutely, but I was one of those people who the lawyer I had before yes. you did not protect me correctly, and then I was in a hard situation. So right. I am very glad that you came in and with assisting me. In the novel, a story is told of Dinah Washington being pulled over on suspicion of driving a stolen car, which she wasn't. Mm -hmm. And she was then physically assaulted by a police officer pulling a fur off of her violently to allegedly check to see if it was stolen, the fur, which it wasn't. But it was discovered that there was an unpaid lien on the car based on a dispute about canceling her canceling a performance when she was ill. Mm-hmm. How often do you see circumstances like that, specifically Black people being perceived as suspicious simply by being Black, and this leading to heightened levels of scrutiny that result in Black people being disproportionately charged for offenses that commonly go overlooked when those same offenses occur in white communities? That yeah. was a problem in the time of the Black Bottom Saints. I'm yes. sure you agree. Yeah, do you oh, yeah, think it's agree. a problem today or not? No, the problem still exists. Uh, and the problem exists, it's really, it's really worse today, perhaps, than it was then. And it's really difficult for young people that, you know, when you're young, you do some silly things, uh, things that, 
you know, they do in some cases come back to haunt you. So then under that scenario, and I read that with a great deal of interest because first, you know, that whole notion about a car and the notion about it being a big and luxurious car was something that they used with our artists in order to satisfy them, to take away from them their rights and things and music that they had created. So that's the first thing that really struck me like, wow, here we go with this car stuff again. You know, so they would say, well, don't worry about it. I'll give you a Cadillac. And then, but you, but I own the copyrights to all your songs, so, you know, through a different publishing company that I've created that my family and heirs will benefit and you won't. Uh, so that's one aspect of it that hit me. The other aspect hit me is that there are a lot of people that get judgments and things against them that they're not aware of, or they may have tickets that they're not aware of because, you know, it, it, it happens and they subsequently get arrested for either violating that or doing something that's uh, that's not related, and they go and they look in the computer and say, "Oh, we got a warrant for your arrest," you know. And then that then that, what they try to do then at that point is now they want to relegate you relegate you to being a criminal, which sometimes is the way they see black people, as opposed to really who you are. This is down in Washington. Like, be serious. You don't know who this is. Yeah, they knew it was but intentionally wanted to demean her and relegate her to something that she was not. And I'm and, and a lot of these artists, a lot of the, the older artists would not simply tolerate it. They wouldn't, and they would, they would strike back at them because they didn't really care. They're not gonna be demeaned like that. So that's sort of my, my, uh, my spin on that. But I guess the shorter answer is, yeah, it still happens. You have just butlet something very important that in that Dinah Washington interchange about people being paid in cars as opposed to in publishing. And that's the kind of thing that Massey would have seen too. I would like to read you a short paragraph from Ziggy's word portrait of Massey. Okay. Because it follows up on what you just said. Lawrence's genius was making people who felt a little illegitimate, a little brilliant, but busted know they were brilliant and flawed, but still worthy of their fair share, their fair day in court, their walk in the fair air, despite the flaws and freckles. Mm. I would say you improve on that genius because you see that they are not a little illegitimate. And you see that a lot of these people actually focus on fighting back and not taking that in the first place and recognizing they could rest on their relationship to their black audience to have people understand them despite what was being said by either the legal system or the popular press. Right, Um, yeah, Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Massey was known for his original solutions to problems. He thought the way to police prostitution was to arrest the Johns, not the hookers. He thought the way to police gambling was to close the corporate owned racetracks down, not the numbers banks. Do you have any uncommon solutions that you like to get out in the air to get our listeners thinking about today? Is there an innovative approach to ending the current pandemic that isn't being discussed enough? Or is there another big problem that you think we could tackle almost the exact opposite of how we are tackling it today and get a better solution? That's a difficult, you know, that's a, that's an interesting question. And I guess I really hadn't thought about it. uh, And I probably should. Um, I do think that there are some solutions in reference to um, the, the rights of individuals that are not necessarily embodied in race, but are embodied in who we truly are. So, mm-hmm. 
I think there's a recognition, and, and someone wrote a piece in this office, as a matter of fact, a Dan Blucher that wrote a piece that talked about, uh, and he's a white individual, and he talked about society and the recognition of the power of society and the interaction that we have as people, not as black or white, but just as people. So I think the, rec the, the, the solution, one thing that we have is all this divisiveness that exists in this country that's by design. I think that what we've got to do is begin to talk about the things that are similar to us, you know, in our relationships versus the things that are different. Because it's easy to talk about how different you are, but it's a lot more challenging to talk about, you know, we have the once same, the same wants and needs and and, and desires that everybody has for their children, for their family, you know, and for their economic well-being. So I think that, that there is a solution that's in there that has to go to the core of who we are and use the, the educational system that has been somewhat integrated to teach people just to, to recognize that people already get along with each other because of their involvement with the school systems, but to talk about the relationship and the ongoing relationship that sometimes is overlooked. Well, I think that is brilliant that we should focus on the similarity. Everyone is talking today in the national discussion about division and mm -hmm. polarization, right. and that we should start looking at core values and looking at educational space, acknowledging it is far more integrated today than it was 50 years ago, no matter how oh, yeah. segregated it is, that to see these core similarities, that is absolutely right. amazing. Right. Um, yeah. Ziggy described Massey, as we come to a close, as being defiant, inventive, and em embodying a modern swagger that has everything to do with being efficient, exact, mm -hmm. ambitious, and proud. And he put black, I will say here for you, and human. I think you have all of that amplified, Attorney Richard Manson. To close, what is your favorite kickback after the hard work libation? It can be a soft drink or hard drink, whatever it is. Um, you know, I, I like um, bourbon on the rocks. Love that. Just straight, just straight, nothing in it, just just plain and simple. And the bourbon I'm drinking right now, you know the one I'm drinking, Uncle Nearest. Uncle Nearest, a wonderful Black-owned bourbon yes. company. You know, the all the chapters of Black Bottom Saints end with a libation because yeah. it is a five cents address to joy. The yeah. sight, the sound, the scent, the taste, the touch of joy. Yeah. The glass I will raise to you is a glass Ziggy raised to Lawrence Massey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I thank you for being with us today, libation for the feast day of Lawrence Massey, the uncommon solution today in honor of Richard Manson, who brings us so many uncommon solutions. And it's one jigger of bourbon, but it does add one pony of sweet vermouth, a little sure club soda, uh -huh. one lime juiced. You begin by juicing one lime into a cocktail shaker. You add the vermouth, the bourbon, the ice, and you shake. You strain into a cocktail glass or champagne flute and top with some club soda. Or if you're Richard Manson, you just pour some uncle nearest in that glass. I will do it. 
Next podcast, we'll be talking about Dr. Bob Bennett with President and CEO of Meharry Medical College, Dr. James Hildreth. Until then, keep zagging with Ziggy. And always remember, joy is radical. And thinking about Richard Manson, center our unity. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Chelsea Crowell and Aaron McNally. The theme from Black Bottom Saints was written and recorded by Lewis York. Nashville Women Blues was recorded by Reese Palmer and written by Bessie Smith. The novel Black Bottom Saints is published by Amistad, HarperCollins, and is available at your favorite bookstore and on Audible. Find out more at alicerandall.com.